Boy, do we have a lot to talk about. All right, so we have arrived at quite possibly the most perplexing debated passage in the Bible. If, it is, if it's not the most debated perplexing passage, then it is in the top three. We're going to spend a few weeks in Genesis 6 because it's critical to our understanding of the ancient Near Eastern culture's supernatural elements. You know, today we don't process things the way that they did. And part of this series is to get our minds to think about what they would have thought, the Jews, the Israelites, the people of that day. And it wasn't just the Israelites who had a supernatural worldview. All of the Mesopotamian religions from the, in the Old Testament up to even today have some semblance of an affinity for supernatural, for the cult, evil things. So we're going to spend a few weeks in this because it's critical to how we understand the rest of the Bible on one level. Today, we're going to focus on just what the Bible says, only what's in the Bible. And we're going to look at four verses today, beginning in Genesis 6, verse 1. And I quote, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right. Top three most perplexing debated passages in all of the Bible. All of the Bible. Maybe not to you, but to many people, this passage has been one of hot debate. So we're going to answer two questions. The most debated question from this passage is, who are the sons of God? Who are they? They obviously play a critical role into what happened in the flood. In fact, they play a critical role into the fact that God caused the flood, allowed a flood to wipe out humanity. So who are the sons of God? This is the most debated question from this passage. Who are they? The next question we're going to answer is the most asked question of this passage. Who are the Nephilim? Who are they? That's what we're after. Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? But there's one question that we need to keep in our mind as we process the information, as we process who we think the sons of God are and who are the Nephilim. This question should be in every one of our minds when we read this passage. And here's the question. 
Why was God's response to destroy all life as a result of the sons of God, the Nephilim, the sons of God having, taking as wives, daughters of men? Why was God's response to destroy everyone except eight people and a few animals? A few animals. In Genesis 6, 5 through 7, we see this. Right after the passage we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So the question that we have to ask, at least to help us process who the sons of God are and who are the Nephilim, is what were the wicked acts that would cause God to destroy the whole world? I mean, even the creeping things. It's not even really possible for them to sin. This is an under, under, underrated, underestimated question. What would cause God to destroy the whole world? And how do the sons of God and the Nephilim contribute to God saying, it's a wrap? I, I, I grieve the fact that I even made. Remember, God said it was good that he made Humanity and everything that he made. It was good. Every day, whenever he created things, it was good. Matter of fact, he rested on the seventh because everything he did through days one and six is good. And now God's saying, I'm destroying everything. I regret that I have created them. What would cause that kind of response from God? Especially if you take into account what Romans 5, 12 and 13 says. Here's what Romans 5, 12 and 13 says. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So here's what it's saying. Sin was in the world before Exodus and before Moses wrote the law, and gave the do's and don'ts to his people. But God is not counting it against them as sin because they didn't have a law to say, do not do this. So what would cause God, when he didn't even establish a law for people to break, what would cause him to destroy everything? And how do the sons of God and the Nephilim contribute to that? This is a question that we have to have in our mind. Thank you, Sarah. I don't need you right now. Here's a question that we have to ask. Right, let's make a few observations of the passage. Just a few observations. Let's read it again, verses 1 through 4. This is where we're at today. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, for his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth 
In those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. Let's make a few observations of the passage before we answer who the sons of God are. The timing of this event is challenging because we have no idea how long daughters were in the land before angels or whoever, sons of God or whoever they are, before they decided to have sex with these women. We have no idea when this started. How long was it going before God said, you know what? This is a wrap. We don't know how long. We have no idea. What we do know is from Genesis 5, 3 and 4, here's what it says. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So we know that daughters are born. They start coming, but we don't know at what point did the sons of God say, we're taking them as wives. It seems like from the passage, the way it describes is this would have been immediately as they were getting older because it says this. When Adam had lived, it said that, said that wives, that they began to have sons and daughters. So it almost seems like immediately after that happened, and they were obviously of age, the sons of God decided to take them as wives. But we don't know how long that happened before God said enough. Second observation is the imagery of this passage may be inaccurate. Look at verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, we're, we are 21st century people who are alive. When we hear the word wives, took as their wives, we immediately think marriage. We might not use that language, I took her as my wife. He sounds more like Captain Caveman out here, right? But it's a little archaic to talk like that. But the sense of when you hear the word wives, you think, okay, these people were getting married. Here's the challenge. The Hebrew word for took, it means to grasp, seize, take away, or remove. Now, I don't know how people who are married here, how comfortable you would be if said, yeah, I grasp my wife. I seized her, took her. Might feel some type of way, you know. I removed her from her mother and father. <laughs> In some situations, that's probably accurate. But we don't want any problems today. We try to stop problems. We ain't trying to cause them. It is not describing a marital situation. It says they took, they seized, they removed the daughters of men. The other problem with the imagery here is the word wives. Wives in the Hebrew can also mean woman or female. It's a general term. It doesn't mean 
wives exclusively as a married woman. It just means a woman or female. It's a general term, but it can also mean wives. But actually the first, you know how when you read the definition, the first ones are usually the most common and then the other ones? Women, females, and then wives is how the definitions lay out. So the general term used is, remember what your Bible is. Your Bible, our Bibles are an English translation of an old language. So they figure out, based on context, what word should be used to describe what's happening here. So when you read your Bible, you can't just point at what it says in English because it is a translation. The Hebrew word that they translated this from, wives, that's translated could mean woman or female. If you take this into account, which I think this is an accurate account, and you'll see why later on, Genesis 6 is not necessarily describing people marrying sons of God, living with women, raising children. This is not necessarily a statement about marriage. What this is saying is the sons of God took any woman they wanted and had sex with them. Is what this is saying. This is introducing something else. It's not explaining marriage. It says they took any woman they wanted because they were attracted to them. This is quite possibly the introduction of, an of another deviation of marriage. We see in Genesis 4.19, it says this about Lamech, who's on the wicked line of Cain. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. So here we see the first time that two wives are taken, so kind of polygamy. Well, if Lamech is introducing polygamy, then based on the, the phraseology of Genesis 6, the sons of God are introducing sex outside of marriage and are establishing the first baby daddies. <laughs> this is it. This is not talking about marriage. This is having sex and women having children. This isn't like, hey, dad, and they just throwing the football around. <laughs> they wouldn't have football back then, but they throwing raccoon skins or whatever they used, ain't eh? It might not have had pigs. I don't know what they had. This wasn't that. This wasn't that. This is introducing sex outside of the confines of marriage. Next observation. In verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Is this describing the length of human life, as many people think? Or is it describing the amount of time it took to build the ark? Many people think that. Those are the two prevailing views. This is describing the length of time that Noah took to build the ark before God said, I'm judging everyone. It was like, you guys have 120 years to repent. As Noah's building. Some say that. Some say, no, this is the length of time of humanity. That God said humans will no longer live beyond 120 years. Here's the problem with this type of reality. God isn't as either or as we are. 
part of the challenge of understanding God and part of our flaws in reading the scripture is we have the dichotomy of either or. Now, there are times where it's either or. Either you believe in Jesus or you don't. But there are a lot of things that are not either or with God. Here's what he says. My spirit will not always abide in man. Here's why it could mean the flood. They have 120 years. Here's why it could mean that. One, Jewish tradition says that it's 120 years before the flood. They see it as connected to the flood, and partly they look at Genesis 5.32. They start there. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right? That's what it says. And then in Genesis 7.6, it says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. It's 100 years. So they say they round up 20 years, and they think that the time that God is speaking of is the amount of time from God's statement to Noah to build the ark until the flood. 100 years. Others view it as the length of time that human beings would live. And there's actually a third view that the flood would just take place within 120 years. These are the views. So here's why it could be the flood, because it could be God saying, you know, it was around 100 years, around 120 years where the destruction happened. That could be the case. Here's why it could be the lifespan of humanity. Because the Lord said, in, again, in verse 3, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The term my spirit is not the same way we understand the Holy Spirit being in us. There was no need for the Holy Spirit in the same way in this point in time. So my spirit is different than how we understand my spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is a description of God saying, I'm ke I keep humanity alive. Humanity in and of itself is not going to live 900-something years old. God keeps humanity alive. So it's phraseology that's indicative of saying, my spirit is what keeps people alive. And I'm not going to abide in them longer than 120 years anymore. I'm not going to let people live longer than 120 years. And at some point over the course of the Bible, you see that there's no one who lives longer than 120 years. And today, I, maybe there's someone, I think the highest I've seen was like 113 years, something like that. And that person didn't even want to be alive at that age. <laughs> they were like, I'm, she was like, I'm tired. I've seen too much. And who's going to argue with her? It's a description of God saying, I keep humanity alive. So it could mean the lifespan of humanity. Here's why I think God is saying both. I don't think it's an either or. Because one, God is not confined to either or. But more importantly, we see plenty of examples in the Bible where God means multiple things that are taken at face value initially, right? So let's go to Genesis 2, 16. Here's the first time you see this happen. Here's what he says. Talking to Adam, after he creates him, 
He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God says, for in the day you eat of it. Now, if we process that, we think the day you eat of it, you're gone. Adam lived 930 years. So he died, but it didn't happen in that moment. But everyone thinks that Adam died spiritually, that there was a spiritual death, a, a connection to God that was severed because of it. So they get removed from his presence, but obviously he still is blessing and caring for them. But essentially, everyone knows that the death wasn't the day it was going to happen, and it wasn't just a physical thing. There was a difference in the way Adam and Eve related to God because now they are deciding good and evil on their own apart from him. It is common in the scriptures for God to have an immediate meaning and an eventual meaning. Common. If I had more time, I'd give other examples. I think what God is saying is both immediate and eventual about the 120 years. Within 120 years, I'm wiping everyone out. And after that, people aren't going to live longer than 120 years. Because if you think about it, the sin gets multiplied when people are living eight, 900 years. It's like all this sin is happening because you just transfer it to the same. You father, your father, you father, your father, and all of it. And you got like, you know, 112 kids. I don't know what the child support was like in the... How many rocks and bricks did you have to make to? <laughs> All right, last observation from this part. The identity of the Nephilim. It said the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the way you read the passage, the way it's constructed in our English Bibles it makes it seem like the Nephilim are a separate entity from whatever the sons of God and daughters of man had. Listen to how it said, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. It sounds like it's saying the Nephilim were on the planet. They're not the product of the sons of God and the daughters of men union. It just says they were on the earth at that time the way our Bibles are constructed. It gives that impression that they were there, which makes it more confusing as it in, well, who were they? Because it says they were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. But we don't know, based on the way the sentence structure is, it could be they were just there already. What did they have to do with the sons of God and the daughters of man coming together? The passage does not explicitly say that the sons of God and the daughters of man created the Nephilim. It just says that they were there. They were there. The identi- now, here's the three. The identity of the Nephilim in the grand scheme of the Bible and in the grand scheme of our salvation, our day-to-day walk with the Lord, is not necessary. It's not necessary at all for us to accurately know who the Nephilim are. It's just not. You can still live a productive, godly life 
and not know who the Nephilim are, who the sons of God are, right? But it can be helpful to explain other parts of the Bible that give us some solidarity onto what we actually understand truth to be. So here's a summary. The sons of God started having sex with the daughters of man. These were sexual relationships, not necessarily marriage. I'm not saying no one married each other, but the prevailing assumption that the sons of God married the daughters of men is not, it's imported in. It's pushed into this. At least from Genesis. It's imported. It's not necessarily, doesn't mean that there weren't marriages. And the 120-year cap on the lifespan of humanity and the time frame from which the flood was to come seems to be the reality. Now let's answer the first question, who are the sons of God? Based on just what the Bible teaches. Now to be fair, I need to present the different viewpoints of this. So there are three main viewpoints on who the sons of God are in Genesis 6. So I want to be fair and present each of what they say and how they use the Bible to make their case. So let's read Genesis 6, 1 through 2, 1 and 2 again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. All right, so here is the first view that people have of who the sons of God are. It's called the Sethite view. The Sethite view. So it's one of the most popular views. Let me read you a take on people who believe this view. The Sethite view is the argument that men from the godly line of Seth married daughters from the ungodly line of Cain and bore the Nephilim who were not giants but very sinful, combative men. Sethite supporters generally see an overarching theme in Genesis 4 and 5, right? So they see Genesis 4 describing unbelievers, people who reject God, and Genesis 5 describing people who believe in God through the line of Seth. So their understanding is that because Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 are talking about two lines, Cain's line and Seth's line, they're saying that the men of Seth who were considered righteous married the daughters of Cain who were unrighteous. That's the viewpoint. All right, this came into play around the 5th century, this interpretation of Genesis 6. Let me give you some background as to what people are saying, why this happened. It was in the 5th century A.D. that the angel interpretation of Genesis 6 was increasingly viewed as an embarrassment when attacked by critics. Furthermore, the worship of angels had begun within the church. Also, celibacy had also become an institution of the church. The angel view of Genesis 6 was feared as impacting these views. This is what was happening in fifth century church. Celsus and Julian the Apostate used a traditional angle belief to attack Christianity. So Julius Africanus resorted to the Sethite interpretation as a more comfortable ground. Cyril of Alex, these are all people who, early church fathers, people who were prominent in the early church and defining some of the things that we even believe today. Cyril of Alexandria also repudiated the orthodox angel position with the line of Seth interpretation. 
Augustine also embraced the Sethite theory, and thus it prevailed into the Middle Ages. Martin Luther and John Calvin have this view, and it is still widely taught today among many churches who find the literal angel view a bit disturbing. So this is perspective. So the sons of God generally are those who hold, they believe that the godly line of Seth married the daughters of ungodly Cain, and the Nephilim are an ungodly offspring of violent men who caused a lot of havoc. Now, we do know that in the Bible, particularly after Israel is a clearly established as God's people, that marrying people outside of them was forbidden. It was prohibited. I mean, you could say, even say that most of the initial judgment towards Israel were marrying outside of the ethnicity, marrying outside of the faith. So if you import that back to this, this makes a lot of sense. There are good theologians who think this way. Here's a couple of problems with this view. Here's a few problems. Nowhere in the Bible at this particular juncture or in the Bible at all are the Sethites called the sons of God. There's never any place in the Bible that says the Sethites are the sons of God. Here's what it does say. Here's what we do know. Genesis 4, 26. Here's what it says. It says, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's all we get. And then we get later, we know Enoch walked with God. But that's what we get. That's a problem to call the Sethites the son of God from the scriptures. Another problem with this is that it's not clear if every male in the line of Seth was godly. That's not clearly established from the Bible. Now, it does appear that everyone in Cain's line that's listed was ungodly. It doesn't seem like everyone in Seth's line were godly. That doesn't seem to be the case. One commentator said this, the point which Moses makes, makes it clear in Genesis chapter 5 is that God preserved a righteous remnant through whom promises to Adam and Eve will be accomplished. One has the distinct impression that few were godly in these days. And here's why, because it says when God says I'm destroying everyone, he says, but God, Noah found favor with God. So the impression is not these line are godly. It's only Noah is. So to call them the sons of God, there doesn't seem to be a biblical basis. Also, the term daughters of men would have to be only restricted to Canaanites. Then. So only they only married Canaanite women? That doesn't seem likely that the emphasis is on Cain. In Genesis 6-1, it says, Now it came about when men, men, general term, began to multiply on the face of the land, 
and daughters were born to them. It seems to be a general statement, not a specific statement about Seth versus Cain. You would have to make men general in verse 1, that men started to have daughters, and then make men specific when you describe verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. So it goes from general to specific without any clear indication as to how and why. God's judgment on humanity was a general judgment against everyone. Some problems with this passage, with this, with this view. Time doesn't allow for me to share other problems or other issues. Let's move to the second interpretation. Kings, kind of divine kings. So here's the, here's the, here's the general consensus. That kings became polygamous rulers who abused their power, having sex and marrying multiple women and brought condemnation on humanity. So here's where they go. That the immediate context for this statement is all about mankind. So they look at, you know, Genesis 5.1, daughters are born to man. They go to Genesis 5.2, the sons of God and the daughters of man. So they're connecting sons and daughters as human entities. And then when God says in Genesis 6.3, my spirit shall not abide in man, the perspective here is that it's man that causes God's anger, not divine human beings. It's man that causes the anger. So they would say these are describing two classes of human beings, kings who are the sons of God, marrying multiple women who were the daughters of men. They would also say the Nephilim in verse 4 are described as mighty men of old with no hint at being anything other than men. No hint that there was a hybrid at all of humans and angels together. So let me just make sure clear. Both of these views are trying to combat the view that these were angels in Genesis, the sons of God. So what they think is, they are like Cain, who named a city after himself, who, like humans in Babel, sought their own glory instead of God's. Another reason why they believe this is because the language parallels with Genesis 3, the garden. So you get in Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good. You get in Genesis 6, 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. You get in Genesis 3, 6, she took of its fruit and ate. You get in Genesis 6, 2, and they took as their wives and they chose. Any they chose. They would say, even though if a supernatural being is present, which Satan was present in Genesis 3, and if divine beings are present, the emphasis is on human sin, not divine being sin. In fact, in Genesis 6, there's no judgment placed on a being like there was in Genesis 3. At least Satan is acknowledged in Genesis 3 to have contributed to Adam and Eve's fall and disobedience. So he also was punished. But in Genesis 6, it says nothing of the sort. 
It's a judgment against humanity. There's no mention of God's anger towards divine beings at all. Theologian John Walton says this. In this interpretation, the sons of God are the heroic tyrant kings of old. The daughters of men refer to any female in the kingdom. And then he says this. Cohabitation between angels and humans has no immediately obvious connection with the purposes of Genesis. And angelic intrusion is considered out of place in the sequence of the episodes recounting the advance of human sin. In other words, what he's saying is, look, in the flow of the narrative of Genesis, sex between angels and humans has no immediate purpose because all the emphasis is on what humans have done. God's anger and judgment is against humans. And the advancement of humanity's sin is the emphasis in Genesis and the rest of the Bible, not necessarily divine beings. So in their view, this is about human kings that were sons of God, supposed to be godly, marrying multiple women introducing polygamy into the world. Now, remember the question I told you to remember, to think through this. So here's a question you have to ask yourself. Would intermarriage between two classes of humanity so grieve God that he would destroy the whole world, including animals, creepy things, that had nothing to do with it? It's possible. But it seems unlikely. Here's some problems with this view. The passage at this point in time, see, again, we import our view of marriage back in. At this point in time in the Bible, it never says that marriages, the marriages were polygamous. It never mentions it. It just says that the sons of God took any wife that they chose. It could have just meant a guy chose one wife. There's no indication from the passage that there were multiple wives being chosen, and so polygamy was the real issue here. If you look at the passage, it just looks like sons of God, if they were kings, were just marrying women they weren't supposed to. There's no indication that these women were multiple, multiple marriages. We know Lamech did that. In Genesis 4, Lamech married two women, but we don't know if that's what's being said. Kings could have just chose a wife. There's also no passage that tells us that intermarriage between different classes of humanity is already prohibited. Now, we know that happens later, right? We get to that in Exodus. We get to that. But that's after God's established people are there. He's rescued them, taken them out. Here's the law. Do not do this. And we see that married into the New Testament. You're not supposed to marry people who don't share the same faith. You're being unequally yoked. But at this point in the Bible story, if you're an ancient Near Eastern Jew who this was originally written to, there's no passage saying that intermarriage between different classes of humanity is already prohibited. Nor does it indicate that polygamy is a sin. 
Remember Romans 5, 13, for indeed sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So polygamy here wouldn't be counted as sin because there wasn't a law saying not to do that. So then the question again is asked, what logical basis would multiple marriages between kings, human kings, and women bring the world into chaos? Like, how does that happen? The emphasis in Genesis 6 between the sons of God and the daughters of men leads to the restriction of man's lifespan, and it brings judgment, wiping out everyone except eight people. So with this view, the marriage of sons of God, of human men, with Canaanite women so grieved God that he destroyed the whole world. Another problem with this view. The very notion that multiple kings, given the designation as the sons of God, all decided to commit the same act. How would they, I mean, kings, if you think about what a king is, right, a king is, is king over a kingdom. So it's not like there's eight kings that live beside each other. It's not like right here, well, he's a king. He's you king of your own house, maybe, but not. But a king needs space, needs land, people to rule. So you're saying that all of these kings just happen to commit the same sin. Did they talk about it beforehand? Was there like a, hey, let's meet up. Hey, what you think? Hey, Cain's daughters are all right, bro. Like the notion that all of that happened, not coordinated, but just random, like, hey, you know what? That doesn't seem plausible in this passage. There are other things that could be said, but time doesn't permit me to go forward. The third view, which I believe to be the accurate view, is that angels that were in heaven left and went to earth to have sex with women. And they created a giant's race called the Nephilim. Here's reasons why. One, the use of the phrase sons of God in Hebrew is beneha Elohim. Now, if you've been in this series, you know that Elohim means Lord, means God. We know that sons of God in other designations in the Old Testament are called Benaha Elohim. They are divine beings. Genesis 6-2, 6-4 use the phrase sons of God. Job 1-6, Job 1-2, Job 38-7. Every time that designation is used, it's describing angels. It's describing angels. In Daniel chapter 4, there is a portion of Daniel 4 that's written in Aramaic. It's a different language. And listen to how Daniel 4 describes, it's the same term, the same word, but it translates differently. Here's how Daniel 4 says it in Aramaic, beginning in verse 13. He said, I saw the visions in my head as I lay in bed, 
And behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, lest the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave this stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with beasts in the, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let his beast minds be given to him. This is all talking about Nebuchadnezzar, what's going to happen to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. All right, so let's be clear. This is not God himself deciding this. These are watchers, the holy ones. Now, we know from other parts of Scripture, like 1 Kings 19 and Psalm 82. We can go to Psalm 89. We can go to some other places where we know that God has given divine beings authority to make decisions on what happens on earth. God is not to, we always think it's God, but God will, like in 1 Kings 19, hey, who's going to attack Ahab? It said he gathered with the divine council. And then one spirit, one, one divine being was like, I'll do it. God says, how are you going to do it? This is 1 Kings 19. I'm not making this up. You up. God says, how are you going to do it? And he says, well, I'm going to give all of Saul's prophets a lying spirit. And you know what God says? Yeah, do that. Do that. It's going to work. And that's what happens. So the terminology for Benaha Elohim, sons of God or watchers, always designates holy ones. Beings created by God in the eternal realm. Now, watchers, the term watchers will become extremely important for us in next week's message. So remember watchers. Well, you can forget it, but you'll hear it next week. Or you'll remember. Or I heard this last week. The language here does not translate as human beings. It translates as divine beings. Now, while it's true that humanity will eventually be called the sons of God, in this context, humanity is never called sons of God. Never called sons of God. All humanity, like a big, because God hasn't had any established people yet. All we know is that through Seth, people began to call on the name of the Lord. We know that much that God gave Eve another son because Cain killed Abel. But we don't have any sense that the Sethites are the chosen people of God yet. And the designation sons of God later in the Bible are always given to the designated people specifically chosen by God. It's not a general statement about all people. In fact, the designation sons of God doesn't even start to show up until you get to the prophets. The major prophets like Isaiah. Here's what he says in Isaiah 45, beginning verse 3, beginning verse 5. Isaiah 43 Verses 5 through 7. It says, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. 
everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You see, the sons of God and the daughters are everyone who is called by my name, not everyone. So that this designation doesn't even exist until God carves out a people. He says, all right, I'm saving you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you the law, and then I'm going to be a father. You're going to be, and this is how we're going to do this. That doesn't happen yet in Genesis 6. To call the Sethites the sons of God is speculative eisegesis. Could be, could be right. I just don't think it is. It's usually given to a people designated. They were chosen by God. In Genesis 5.22, it says Enoch walked with God. It specifically highlights Enoch. It doesn't say all the Sethites walk with God. It says Enoch walked with God, isolating Enoch. And this character was of such that God, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 5.24. So it's isolating in all the ungodliness, Enoch out of the Sethites walked with God, and then Noah found favor. This designation is not yet given to people chosen by God. God is highlighting people who seem to be following him. Sons of God is not yet given to humanity by the time we get to Genesis 6. Another problem with, another reason why I believe it's angels is because two passages in the New Testament, and these for me are the deal breaker from the Bible's perspective. Here's what 2 Peter 2 verses 4 through 9 say. Watch closely, listen closely to his language. Listen closely to what 2 Peter is saying. Remember this, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit writing scripture to believers in his second epistle. And here's what he said, beginning in verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he had saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let's read Jude. Let's read Jude. Jude 1, beginning in verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. Now, if you read this, it doesn't explicitly say that it's referring to Noah. It doesn't explicitly say that. 
Peter focuses on God's ability to save in the midst of extreme wickedness. Jude focuses on God's ability to judge the wicked. But there's an important connection here that we must make that I think contributes to why angels are the proper understanding. All scholars, whatever view that they agree with, almost all scholars believe that what Peter and Jude are talking about the same situation. They believe that they're talking about the flood, Genesis 6. Even if they don't believe that it's angels, they believe that Peter and Jude are responding to the same thing. There are two descriptions of what angels did. Look at the chronology of the passage. 2 Peter, verse 4. Look at the chronology of his argument. For if angels did not, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Right? So if angels sin, then verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven brothers, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Right? If he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes into the extinction. So look at the chronology. Angels sin. They bring about judgment. The ancient world, God didn't spare the ancient world. After angels sin, the ancient world is not spared, but Noah is. So it's angels sin. The ancient world is now judged. God spared Noah. That's the chronology of Peter's argument inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's no other translation that has a different chronology. So as Peter's writing, angels sin in his mind. He's thinking of Genesis 6. There's no other story that we know of that there was a rebellion, angelic rebellion, prior to this. It's all speculative. We have no, the only time people say that we know from Revelation 12, and if we're looking at the context of angels and a third of the angels, that's not true. But if, that, if we even thought that were true, that was in response to the Savior being born and a war in heaven breaks out. That's thousands of years away from Genesis 6. So his, his, his chronology is angels sinned, cast into hell. He did not spare the ancient world. The ancient world is judged. Preserve Noah. Then he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude. And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept into eternal chains, gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. And then he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual morality. So they're talking about the same events, then it begins with angelic sins. But there's one more connection to this that in all my reading, I feel like people just kind of missed. Why does it go from Noah, angels of sin, judging the world, sparing Noah, and then to Sodom and Gomorrah? The next big rebellion would be Tower of Babel. Both of these passages, Jude and Peter, go from Angels that sinned to Sodom and Gomorrah. Both of them do. Where's the other rebellions that happened in between those? Because technically, if we want to be technical, we could say that the Tower of Babel was sin, but God found favor with Abraham. Right? And then Genesis 12 is Abraham. 
the story of Abraham. Genesis 12 through 50 is all about Abraham and his family line, establishing a new people for God. Why do both Peter and Jude go from the flood, Genesis 6, to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because both stories have to do with having sex with angels, humanity. Both of them do. Both stories. Genesis 6, angels have sex with women. Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, men want to have sex with angels. Both of those stories are getting at what Peter, what Jude describes here as, in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. See, most people process unnatural desire or NASB, strange flesh, they process that as uh, homosexuality. They think the unnatural desire is that. And, they, and it seems like it could make sense, but there's some problems with that. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think the unnatural desire is between humanity and divine beings. And the stories both make sense. Noah and the story of Noah, they're judged by water. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're judged by fire. Now, I can't prove this, but I believe that the men in Sodom knew they were angels. And the men were aware of prior sexual intercourse between mankind and angels. And I can't prove that, but let me tell you why I think that. In Genesis 18, 2 through 5, this is what we read. Talking about Abraham. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So Abraham sees three people, three men, and he bows before them and begs them. I mean, I could be wrong because I'm not alive back then. I don't know if it's ancient custom for you to just see a dude and you bow before him. Call him Lord and then say, let me feed you. Now, they were supposed to be hospitable, but bowing down is what you do to someone who's greater than you. Abraham recognized these are not just men. These are angels. So when he's having a conversation, remember he's going back and forth about, all right, well, Lord, would you destroy it if it's only just, if there are 50 men there? And he says, all right, I'll keep it at 50. All right, Lord, please don't be mad, right? Don't be mad. But if it's just 10 men, will you spare the city? Why would you be talking to a regular man about that? He understands that this is God. These are divine beings with authority, and they visited me. I'm humbled. Let me bow down. In Genesis 19, verses 1 and 2, it says this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night there and wash your feet. Then you may rise up and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. 
Lot recognized that these were men, but they were not just ordinary men. Now, we're going to get to this in this series. But when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, he doesn't appear as an angel. It tells us that it's the angel of the Lord. But what people saw, Gideon and different people, they saw a man that they knew that's not no regular dude. We got in the, in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, Luke 1 and 2, Gabriel appears to Mary and Zechariah. And it never describes him as anything, him as anything other than a man. And a man appeared. But Mary knew this isn't an ordinary dude. He just looks a little different. We know that. In Mark 16, 5, when Mary Magdalene goes into the tomb, it says she saw a man sitting there with a white robe. It didn't say he was glowed up. Now, there is another story that says his lightning shine bright. But that was to, if I'm not mistaken, to scare the, the soldiers, right? It says they saw him and they just were like a dead man. They were so terrified, they just dropped. But they're described as men. Hebrews 13.1 tells us, be careful how you interact with people because you may be entertaining angels. Throughout the Bible, people could identify that those are not ordinary men. And the supernatural world that they lived in and were aware of was not uncommon of divine beings and human beings interacting. I think the men in Sodom knew these are not ordinary dudes, and we want to have sex with them. So the story that's connected in Jude and Peter goes from angel sinning, judgment against the ancient world, Noah spared, to Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment against that sexuality, same sexuality, Lot spared. This is what's happening. It's for these reasons and a few others that I believe that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angelic beings. Now, there are problems to this view, and time doesn't permit me to say what some of those are. But I said this earlier in the message. In the grand scheme of things, who the Nephilim are and who the sons of God are do not affect our salvation at all. And that's 100 percent true. But there's, but there's something else I need to say. If the sons of God are not angels and the Nephilim are not the offspring of angels and human beings, then there is a huge theological category in the New Testament that we will no longer understand and the Jews would have gotten horribly wrong if that's not the case. And the category that I'm talking about, we're going to talk about next week. Next week, we'll answer who are the Nephilim. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that just laying out some observations of this passage, this is just the first layer. Lord, you know where we're headed. So I pray that just laying out the, the, the different views is helpful. I want, I want our people to hear everything, to know it want us to hear why, what people think. We're not afraid 
to bring up what others think and if we may disagree. And we could all be wrong, Lord. We could all be wrong. You know we're doing this for your glory. But I believe, Lord, that the, the reality of who the Nephilim and the sons of God are is critical in many ways to our understanding of some other things that even to this day affect us. So I pray, Lord, that as you, that you would, one, allow me to, to resume next Sunday as we look at who are the Nephilim and the sons of God from a different source than just the Bible. But I pray that you would, in our hearts, give us a further fascination. May we have an endless fascination of you and your word. This series is not to show the impressiveness of the person who preaches. It's to show the depth and the intricacies of your word. Lord, help us to grow deeper in an excitement to read, to understand, and to be humbled by the things that we don't get that don't make sense to us. But Lord, also use this series to help things make sense to us that used to not make sense before, that give us a further confidence in your word. And if it's your will to continue to use me, Lord, I accept, and I ask you for help with the responsibility and thanks for the opportunity. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we do, do have a few questions. Remember, all questions may not be answered. Um, if you, you are here, please make sure you see Pastor Curtis. Your question is not answered, but we do have uh, one in, and I see others coming. Um, so uh, the person asks, um, are the angels that slept with, uh, with women and the angels that were cast down from heaven with Satan uh, for when trying to overthrow the throne of God a part of the same or different um, rebellion? So, so if, if I believe that Jude and Peter are right, it says that those angels who rebelled are kept in gloomy judgment. So they're not a part of the other rebellion. I'll explain in two weeks what I think happened in terms of the angelic rebellion and how that developed. Because we're going to look at some stuff that will give us at least what the ancient, what the Israelites thought. And then we'll expound on that. But I, I think they're two different. Those people, because that's a sin. That's a sin that doesn't happen again. It's a sin. And the, and the, and the punishment was so swift. I mean, it says these people are held in gloomy judgment, chains, waiting to be punished, waiting till the judgment day. So they did that, and they've been chained up since. They've been chained up since. That, that sin that sin was so severe that it caused God to destroy everything. And those angels who did that, they're kept in gloomy judgment and darkness. I think other angels emerged for different reasons, which we'll talk about in two weeks. Okay, so this follow-up question is for me. How many, uh, so it seems that you're referring to different rebellions. How many different angelic rebellions do you think there were? Well, that's a tough question to answer because you get, so you get Satan in Genesis 3, you get Genesis 6, we got to talk about what happened at Babel, you get 
uh, Daniel where it says, look, I'm contending with, I, I came to, uh, the angel said that, says, look, I was coming to, to, to help you, to give you a message, but I was caught up by the prince of um, Persia. And so Michael had to come help, right? So again, there's, there's, there's wars going on there that we don't know anything about. We don't know how that was happening. So I think it's quite possible. And then you have what's described in Revelation 12. And I think it's quite possible that there are always degrees. And then you have the story of Elisha, remember, where they were like, open his eyes to see what's happening, right? And then he, pull, he opens his eye and he sees all these divine beings on chariots. And he was like, oh, okay, I'm not scared anymore. Let's go to war. So I think there's a lot happening all the time. And we just are not privy to that. Like when he told Daniel, man, I've been trying, I was held up for three weeks. The prince of Persia opposed me. So it was a struggle. I'm not going to. So think about that. Daniel, you prayed, chosen by God, you prayed. I came to give you the answer to your prayer, but there was an angel, a prince of Persia, that was stopping me for three weeks. So Michael had to come to my assistance. That's saying a lot. That's saying a lot. But that's a different conversation. So I think there, was, I think there were multiple ones that, that we know from in Scripture, and then I think they're just... Then I think you get to Exodus 12. Ah, I can't wait till we get to the plagues. But that's, I think there's a lot going on. I think, there's, I think a lot of stuff is constantly happening. I have more questions, but I'll answer other, ask Good. other people's questions. We'll talk. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this question is, do you believe that men of great evil who have appeared in modern times could actually be Nephilim? Examples would be Adolf Hitler, Genghis Khan, those types of folks. As you know, so let me say this. There are people that think that. There, I mean, if you go on YouTube, you'll find somebody that thinks everybody's a Nephilim. You know? <laughs> so it just depends on the credibility of their, their point, right? I've, I've seen many videos. The Nephilim, the secret to them, they're still here. They're on this island. And it's like, oh, okay, well. I mean, for all I know, the Nephilim were like Shaq and, and Bill Russell and them tall dudes. It was just, so I think they exist. They just play ball in America. So I don't, I, I, I don't know if they still exist um, to this day. I think when evil people, I think that's more connected to Satan. I think people are sons of Satan, seeds of the, the offspring of Satan more than their Nephilim. Nephilim, in, and we'll see this the next two weeks. And then Nephilim are usually described as giant beings, like Goliath. Goliath is one of the Nephilim. The Anakites, when, when we'll get to this when we get to the number, but the numbers 13, when they go and look at the land, they're called the Rephaim, but they're like, hey, look, they're giants. We're like ants to them. And, and God says, all right, because you don't have, Joshua, they were like, hey, we can do it, though. The Lord is with us, right? And it's like, but they say the, the, the Nephilim are there. <clears throat> I think they're, re, they're referring to the idea of who the Nephilim are instead of the actual Nephilim that were in Genesis 6, because they're giant beings. There were other beings that were giants. Rephaim, Anakites, some of the Philistines were also giant beings. All right, we, we have quite, uh, we have a few questions that are along the line of um, just, uh, we, well, we won't, we'll just move along. We'll go to the people's questions. So you mentioned uh, throughout the Bible that people were able to tell who angels were. Um, do you think there are still angels walking around among us 
and do you think we're able to tell who they are? I think, I think, I think Hebrews 13, I don't think it ended that statement, entertaining angels. I think so. I don't know if, I, there are people who have told stories like, uh, one, I remember reading a story one time years ago, a lady talked about her car broke down on like near this cliff and then a guy walked up and said, hey, can I help? And she didn't even see him come up and he was like, yeah, and he, she said he did it really fast and she said something seemed odd about him. And so when she turned around to thank him, he was gone. So she can, so I think that stuff does happen. What I do think, I think it happens more in countries where who Jesus is isn't as widely known and he reveals himself in those ways to if you if you if the stories are right in certain parts of the country like in Islamic countries there is a wave of people becoming Christians and they said how is this happening they said because we're having these dreams where Jesus is revealing himself and they're having these conversations with angels I think the Lord is the Lord is the one who saves not the church so when the church is not doing its job, the Lord says, I'm still on mine. So if you're not going to say nothing, then I'm going to send angels. I'm going to appear in dreams. And just because you don't agree with it, it doesn't mean nothing to the Lord. So I think he's saving people despite we over here fighting over politics and the people's souls are at bay. So he's like, all right, let me give people dreams and make YouTube videos to warn them about hell since y'all not going to do it. Let me go to these countries and preach the gospel through by myself. Let me appear. So I think the Lord, we got to remember, he's the one who saves. He'll use us, but it's not like he needs us. And there's a, there's a revivals in Islamic countries of all places. These people will get murdered by their people if they, if, when they, if they get caught. And these people are like, hey, man, I can't deny it. He appeared in a dream. It was clear. So I just think the Lord is working. So, yeah, I think angels are around still. I don't think they're, I mean, even Jesus. Remember Jesus said, when he talked about he warned about hurting children? And he said, their angels see what's going on, and they report to God like they're around. Mm -hmm. So I think there are times angels, there's other stories I could tell that people believe that they were, it was an angel. I mean, shoot, the show touched by an eight. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> wasn't the highway to heaven? To... <laughs> so even Hollywood believes, right? So now I meet Joe Black, right? So. So yeah, I look, I look. I got people like, oh, I need to see that again. Yeah, let's. Go I need to watch to that in light of this series. I don't watch that movie in light of this series. <laughs> you just want to see Brad Pitt go ahead and knock it off. So uh, someone else asked, um, if man is the only one made in God's image, in the image of God, then why do angels look like men, or how could angels look like men? Well, angels. As far as we know, angels appear as human beings on earth. Um, when they appear, they appear as human beings. That could be due to the fact that we would probably all, all the people that angels appear to, I think would have a cardiac arrest. If an angel appeared with half a head of a, 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 of a lion, a head of a, of a claw feet, goat feet, and then I, I think I, I, would, I would drop dead. The Lord would... <laughs> It would be, it wouldn't be, I didn't have a heart attack because I was fat. It was because I saw that. <laughs> that was enough, and that was it. And the spirit would have to, because there's no way. So, I, you know, I, I think, I think, but, but again, being made in God's image isn't about looking like a human being, though. Being made in God's image is, is deeper than that, but it's much, it's much more significant. But I think the way that's more connected to 
because Christ would appear as a human being, and God did all that in light of that. Like this, God doesn't do things like as they happen. You know what I'm saying? Like when you, it's not like okay, this happened, let's do this. And this is, it's like, nah, I know what's going on. This is what we're going to do. This is the plan. I mean, for him to immediately tell Satan in Genesis three, because you've done this, uh, this woman's going to give birth to a seed. I mean, I was already. It wasn't like, all right, I'm going to do this now because you did this. It was like, I knew you were going to do this, and let me tell you what's going to happen because you did this. So I just think being made in God's image is different than being a human being. But I think it's a designation that says we are like God in very distinct ways. And let me tell you what it means, why I think it's different. Because while angels have a free will in the same way, humanity is different in that, like most angels, well, I need to save that. Let me wait till, never mind, let me save that. Let me save that until two weeks never mind yeah that's my answer <laughs> I just think I don't I mean I don't I don't know if it's the designation was by God I'm not gonna say anything else until two weeks about angels okay uh, this one uh, says uh, this question is the story of Lot is sometimes used as a proof passage against homosexuality um, if this passage is about angelic sex should this change our perspective on homosexuality or other places or are there other places we can look to have a right understanding well genesis sodom and gomorrah is not the proof text for homosexuality at the very least it's it's sexual activity well first of all it's men knew each other right so it wasn't like this is the first time we're doing this this was indicative of what the city was like so it still does cover homosexuality as a negative thing and this is why it said all the men of the city came and said, let us have sex with you. So it was a sexual perversion and corruption that wasn't designated just to angels. That's one thing. But Genesis 19, to me, is not the proof text of homosexuality and the prohibition against it. I think you go to Leviticus 18, you go to, I mean, the two main ones are Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and then Romans 1. I mean, those are the dominant proof texts. And then you go to, yeah, there's a lot of places you can go for that. Um, but I, I don't think Genesis 19 is the proof text, but I don't think Genesis 19 is somehow not describing the having sex with angels was the perversion that connects back, I think, to Genesis 6, the sons of God, and it called for a, a unique judgment from God. Like that was, those were unique judgments, like water and then fire from heaven, right? Those were unique judgments as a result of those particular issues and because you don't see that kind of judgment happening even to other nations that engage in sexual activity outside of God's design. Those were unique because I think in both stories, and divine beings and human beings were, were, potential, were cohabitating and potentially trying to. So I would, to close, I wouldn't say Genesis 19, if it's be talking about that, should somehow make us think differently about, because there's too many, there's an overwhelming theme in the Bible about God's sexual design for humanity, and there's never a positive reference at all in any way, shape, or form to people of the same sex or gender um, having sexual intercourse, being married or being in love. There's never a positive affirmation. I think at times when we're trying to look at what the Bible says and say, well, maybe this means, I think people have to give some positive affirmation for that. Like give, show, give some, because if the church is wrong, on that issue, then you have to give some biblical credence to that from what the scriptures say 
and not make us jump through loopholes and think about, there has to be some obvious because there is no positive reference. Mm -hmm. You can't import, well, David and Jonathan, nah. You can't import the Roman centurion whose servant that Jesus healed was a pederasty relationship. You can't import that. So I, I just don't think that if you're going to make that argument, you because this is reality, because if we're wrong, if you're right, then, okay, we're wrong. We're wrong if we think that that's a sin, if you're right and we're wrong, and then you can do it, and then before the glory of God, he'll tell you you were right and you're going to heaven. But if you're wrong and I'm right, you're going to hell. So the stakes are really serious about sexuality. It's not like, a well, can we, I think we have to think, if you really believe that, then you have to give credible evidence to the contrary and not just reading in, because I've done a ton of reading on this subject. And I have a book called, uh, oh, what's that book called? A 700 page book by Lewis Crompton, a gay historian, that when he gets to Judea, he says many people have argued that Paul, if he knew of sexual, uh, an orientation of the same sex, would agree with it and not count it as sin. And this guy is not a Christian, he's a gay historian, and his words were, while it seems plausible, there's no indication of any other study that I've done that would be in Israel, in Judea, or in Christianity, that there would be any positive uh, acceptance of homosexuality. He just said, I just happen to reject the Bible. I respect that. My whole thing is I respect it. If you say, nah, you can't make that argument from the Bible, I just don't care what the Bible says, I respect that. But don't say the Bible doesn't say what it says to try to make your argument because that's just not, that's not right. And also, lastly, if you say that the, the church is wrong on homosexuality as a sin, right, then here's the next question. Then what would you define as sin? They say, well, lying is a sin. A, why do you think it's a sin? Well, because the Bible said, well, how do you know that Paul wasn't referring to a particular type of, how do you know? Well, if, well, if it's the historical context is what they're speaking out of when they're denouncing homosexuality, but everything in the Bible is a historical context. There's, it's not like the Bible was written a couple weeks ago and that, that sexuality was 2,000 years ago. And the No, our salvation is a historical context. It's written in the same book. So if we're questioning the sexual ethics of the Bible, then we have to also question our salvation and every other promise that we have because they're all historically contextualized documents that we apply today. We cannot pick and choose, oh, that doesn't matter, but all of it is a historical contextualized document. So if we question if the sexual ethics still exists, then how do we have confidence that our salvation does when it was written side by side with the same documents, sometimes from the same author? It just doesn't work. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm sympathetic to any struggle. We all have struggles. I'm not judging anyone who's struggling, but I'm not because we're sympathetic to the struggle going to change what the Bible says to somehow accommodate your struggle. It's just not going to happen. I'm not standing before God and giving account for that. I'm not. Now, other people, they, I'm not going to stand before God and say, hey, look, you know, because I wanted to show love and compassion. It's like, I don't know of any other sin issues that we're supposed to accept as love and to be, to be loving. I don't, I don't know of any. And let's be, let me just say this one last thing because it, the church gets blamed a lot for its reaction and the church has done a great disservice to people who are gay, all of it. The church has done a great disservice in many ways. We've treated it as the unpardonable sin. But let's also be clear. 
There's no other category of sinful people that are telling us what your Bible says about what we do is wrong. They came at the church too. There's no murderers, no drug dealers, no adulterers, no liars, no gossips, no slanderers that are all saying the Bible doesn't say what I do is a sin. That's the only issue that we think is sin that you're telling us we're wrong in that sense. So they came at the church too. So you pick the fight on one level, it's like we, people are gonna respond. They're gonna respond. We're gonna defend what we think is true. These people are not just victims of it, they're also attacking what we believe to be true and not thinking through the ramifications of that. If you're right, then we can't have confidence in anything the Bible says. Just because they got slavery wrong and certain things wrong, okay, but the Bible clearly said there were people during slavery that were like, this is wrong. It wasn't like the whole church was like, let's have chattel slavery. And there were tons of people that were saying it was wrong. Tons of people. So, so again, I just, while I'm sympathetic to that struggle, you know, I just, I, we can't be that way to the point where we disregard what the Bible says just because some people are offended at it. And that comes with being a Christian. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. No servant is greater than his master. If the world hates you, remember that it also hated me. And that's just, that's the cost of discipleship. People will disagree with your biblical perspective and you're going to suffer because of it. Some of us will suffer physically until we die. Some of us will suffer emotionally or mentally, but suffering is a part of it. You stand for righteousness, unrighteousness is going to push back. All right, uh, two more questions, um, even though I know there are others that are not going to be asked, so I'm acknowledging that. Um, if you're here, please see Pastor Kurt. Um, but uh, what significance would you draw from uh, the similar language of Genesis 3, 6, and Genesis 6, 2, saw beautiful, pleasing, took. Uh, so in the, in the, what I taught was the people who hold a particular view, the Sethite view, they would see Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. So here's the thing. There is a lot of parallelism in the Bible. There's a lot of it. God does this here, and then it parallels what God does over here. Language is similar, all of it. So the people in the Sethite view would say that there is some parallelism that's there. I don't discount that. I think there is some parallelism in Genesis 3, 6, how Eve processed, she saw that it was good. The daughters of the sons of God saw that it was good. I think there is parallelism to the point where it's almost describing the same sense in the way sin works. We see it, we want it, we justify it, and then we go do it. And so to me, it's more a parallel of the way that we sin. And that's similar to what, and then you get to James 1, 14 and 15, right? The siege, remember, consider, justify, agree, act. There's always a process to the way we sin. I think the parallelism is more about how sin happens in us. We see it, we want it, we justify it, we do it. And even divine beings were able to do that. I think there's more of that than it is like parallelism of, well, Satan was here, here, but there's no mention of divine beings here. I don't think that was the point was it's different. Because the, the, the text starts with Satan, right? So it starts with Genesis 3, and the serpent was more crafty. Mm -hmm. So it's drawing him into the story in ways that Genesis 6 wasn't trying to. All right. Um. <clears throat> This is the last question, and it is, uh, if the angels that fell with Satan from heaven are held until the day of judgment, 
Are there angels that cause spiritual warfare? Um, are the angels who cause spiritual warfare a different fallen sect that continue to fall? Or could they be from the original fallen sect? So the Bible doesn't make clear if all of the angels who sinned are checked, but it gives that impression. And the angels who left their proper dwelling place. When Next week, this is going to make more sense. I'm going to finish what I'm going to say, but next week it'll make more sense when we look at extra-biblical literature that the Jews thought gave more evidence to why they have that position. But it, it's not, but when we think of, so in the, there is a particular number of angels that is named that the Israelites thought this is how many angels sinned. And we're going to hear about that next week. And so I, I think, you know, when you're talking about, I don't know how many angels did God created. There could be millions. There could be thousands. I just don't know. I know Jesus was like, I can call legions. I mean, I can call thousands of angels to my defense. He said, put your sword away. I don't need your help. Like, I can call them. We can, we can clean this up real quick. But that's not what we're going to do. So, so I, I don't know how many angels there are. I imagine, though, that there were plenty of angels to go around. And I'll say this, which I'm going to expound on later. I wasn't going to say this, but I'll say this. I think angels that observe, part of what led them to sin was they observed, essentially, Satan rebelled, and they're watching to see what's the judgment against him. That dude is not destroyed. He's looking. If so if you think like, hey, this God, there's no even consequences for what he did. Humanity's messed up, but shoot, who, we, we don't care about them. Like, we, they look good, though. We care about that. So... I, th I think angels quite possibly are observing the, they may have thought, oh man, he's going to be destroyed. And yet he's given leadership, rulership over the earth. I think that added to the temptation to be like, shoot, we're going to join the party then. Because there are no consequences, at least initially. Now we know when we get to the New Testament, demons tell Jesus, have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? So at some point it becomes clear your time is coming to an end. But, you know, I, I think angels were like, man, ain't nothing happened to Satan. These women, we don't have divine female angels. We going down there. We're rebelling, too. And I think that could have partly prompted. And you'll see why I think that next week. So I, I just think there are enough angels to go around. I don't think they're the same angels. I think angels... You know what angels do? I think they do the same thing we do. We take God's kindness for a weakness. You know, there's a there's proverb that say when there's no consequences for people's sin, people will continue sinning. So if you sin against the Lord and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm probably going to get a car accident or something's going to happen to me and nothing happens. You, there, are, there are people who sin and it never gets exposed and they think, oh, I'm good. And it's like, nah, you still got to stand before God. Like it's like he said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. There are times. And, and the reason why I say this, is because in in first Timothy five, it says this. Some men's sins are conspicuous and go before them to the judgment, meaning their sins are so obvious to everyone, like a Hitler. Maybe he had a deathbed conversion. I doubt it, though. His sins are conspicuous. You know, like, man, it says that they're waiting for him at the judgment. But he said other sins will be revealed in due time. So some people's sins you're not aware of and you don't even see them until... 
I think that's kind of what happens. Angels just think like, hey, there was no consequence for him. We it's not clear. And then eventually uh, punishment happened for some, but not all. Their punishment will be eternal fire. Um, with, with the, 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 fire the sulfur and fire that came from heaven will be their eternal fire, according to Revelation 20. So crazy stuff. This is the tip of the iceberg here. We're getting ready to go another layer deep next Sunday. That's all we got? All right. Man, you know, when you think about the reality of what we're talking about and uh, even reading Peter and Jude, the judgment that God has for people. You know, hell is prepared for Satan and his angels, but we know that people are also going there. We know that's the case. There are people who will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. There are people in Revelation 20 whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that means every name is not going there because it says all the people were judged and people great and small. So the famous people in the world to the ones that nobody heard of will all go to one place or the other. And those of us who will make it to eternity will not be our church attendants, our our, our theological, intellectual, our, our, our economic obedience, it won't be that. It'll be because we had faith in Jesus. And because of that, our, our, not only did our actions and attitudes change, but our motives for why we do what we do change. That's what happens in people who believe in Jesus, that even when we still struggle with sin, it's not like we enjoy it, we're comfortable, and we don't care. There's actual sorrow and grief at the fact that we're failing, even if it's, that's, that's present. When that's not present, you should be concerned. When it is present, don't let the devil make you think you're a hypocrite. Your grief over your sin reveals the spirit of God is in you, and you don't desire to do it, even if you gave into it willfully. Your entrance into the kingdom will be because you had faith in what we're about to participate in now, that Jesus' body was broken on the cross for your behalf. That's the only way that it happens. There are no, there's no other name under which anyone is saved, according to Acts 4.12 and the rest of the Bible. So we do this, and this is for people who believe in the Lord. And I'm not going to assume that everyone in this room believes in the Lord and is trying to live in light of it. I'm not talking about agrees that the Lord is the way to salvation. I'm talking about believes and are trying to live your life according to what it says, even though you will stumble intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, you believe this. And I can't tell you whether you do or not. I have many faults and many struggles, but the one thing I know that the Lord knows, he knows that this is genuine to me. This is real to me. With all my struggles and faults, he knows that this is real to me. And he's the one that's going to judge us, not me. Not your coworkers, not your friends, not your children or your spouses. The Lord knows if it's genuine in you or not. And if you know that it's genuine in you, then you do this with gratitude. If it's not genuine in you, don't do this yet. Don't do this until you appreciate that his body was broken and that his blood was shed on your behalf. So if you do, if this does apply to you, we're not better than anyone that doesn't apply to. It just means we're prepared to take this. Let's eat this together. And we drink this cup as a reminder that his body was broken and his blood was shed. 
so that we could have forgiveness of sin. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you for the lovely tunes that were just being played right now. May have been a reminder that you wanted us to sing a song in worship, but we'll get our cue next week. But Lord, we thank you for just your sacrifice. That, that the sins of humanity contributed to a destruction of the whole world. And the destruction for sin never went away. It was so important to you to judge sin that you decided to judge your own son because you just cannot let sin go unpunished. But what you did say is those who believe in Jesus, we take his punishment for sin. His righteousness, he takes our punishment for sin. So, Lord, even though you may discipline us or things may happen in our lives, we suffer, we have to carry our crosses, we go through seasons where we're challenged in our faith to believe in you. These aren't punishments for sin because Jesus took that. They may be disciplines to help us get back where we need to be or focus and fight. And Lord, I pray for every genuine believer in this room that you would give them a sense of peace, a sense of honor, and the responsibility of ownership to be grown and own their sin, to not make excuses for the things that they would never let their, their jobs wouldn't even let them excuse. Lord, help us to take seriously our responsibility to you because you seriously took on your responsibility for us. And Lord, if anyone here that does not believe yet, Lord, we thank you that you've brought them. I pray, Father, that you would give them the courage and the, the foreknowledge, to, the insight, to, the bravery to ask questions, to humbly say, hey, this is where I'm at, this is what I think, this is what I believe. There's no judgment here because if we're genuinely saved, we're only saved by your grace. We're not saved by anything we did. Even if we think we found you, you were still there to be found. We didn't create you. And so in that notion, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace and mercy to continue in our faith as we grow to understand your word in a deeper way for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Don't forget about the core groups. You can sign up. And also remember that uh, in March there are five Wednesdays. So we're going to actually start on the 8th, which is the second Wednesday of the month, but we're going to see it as the first Wednesday that the new core group structure begins, all right? So you got a little, a little over a week and a half to sign in. If you have any questions, get to me or Mike or ask Hannah. And we thank you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate your participation. And we'll see you when we see you.